Did we actually intend to poison the air, the water, the soil every year? If so, we're doing a great job. But if it's not the plan, what's the plan? Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Welcome to Episode 8 of Science Town. In December, the 25th Conference of Parties, or COP25, took place in Madrid, Spain. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez tweeted that the international community had lost an important opportunity to show increased ambition on mitigation, adaptation, and finance to tackle the climate crisis. In this episode, we get down on the conference floor to explore closing the loop on a circular economy. We spoke with scientists, authors, and designers about the solutions we need and why there's still hope for the future of our warming planet. I'm William McDonough. I'm an architect. I wrote the book Cradle to Cradle. Uh, I teach at Stanford. I run a practice out of Charlottesville, Virginia, where I used to be the dean of the School of Architecture at the University of Virginia. To me, the model of a circular economy is seeing the natural world as something where waste equals food. And the idea that there's no such thing as waste, it's eliminating the concept of waste. So materials flow through natural systems. In the biological systems, you know, leaves fall to the ground and become soil, soil becomes trees, so on. So there's that cycle powered by the sun, powered by carbon from the atmosphere, nitrogen from the atmosphere, combined in humus to create verdure and life. We have similar things going on in the ocean. In the last 5,000 years, since we started banging metal, we've created a whole other ecosystem of materials in flow. And it used to be swords and just plowshares. We had the Iron Age, we've had the you know, copper, bronze, and so on. And it is amazing to think that these metals are still in circulation. 70% of the aluminum that's ever been made by humans is still in circulation. So that's a circular economy of aluminum. It's being used and reused and used and reused. So that's where you put that about 5,000 years, when we sort of diverged from, from a circle into a, a straight line. Well, we were in a hunter-gathering mode. And so as you walked along, you'd pick fruit or nuts or whatever you did, and you would throw the stuff on the ground and keep moving. So it was always cycling back to the soil because we're hunter-gatherers. Right? Once we had agriculture and once we created you know, dense communities, all of a sudden we have midden piles, we have waste because we've concentrated you know, people and concentrated material flows. So you end up with waste piles. Now, when those waste piles are oyster shells in the Pacific Northwest or they're, or they're piles of straw you know, next to a farm, you know, it's not the, not the end of the world, it's just simply another nutrient moment. moment you know. But now these midden piles have become mountains 
and they're full of miscellaneous materials, much of which is toxic. The idea is that you have biological cycles and technical cycles. The technical materials, you don't consume them. You don't consume the aluminum. That's why we have 75% of it available. You, uh, you can't consume a television set. So we call these products as a service. So what you want is the service of the automobile, not the ownership of the molecules. You're not eating it, so you can't consume a car. So when we talk about consumers, we have to be sort of thoughtful. A consumer can consume food, right? You can consume toothpaste. So I can call you a consumer of toothpaste. But I can't call you a consumer of a car or a television set. You can't consume it. What which, you want is Which service. we do do. Do you think that that's a, a, a use of, a manipulation of language perhaps to I obscure think it's that? Just, no, I, I don't think it's obscure it. I just think we're, we're kind of not up to date, you know, because as we wandered around as humans, we used to consume everything in sight as we walked by because it was available. So we got the, into the habit of calling ourselves consumers. And the marketplace, if you look at the language of retail, for example, the manufacturer, the producer, uh, is a soap company. The Walmarts and the retailers are the customers of those producers. And the customers sell products to consumers. So if you shop at a store, you're called a consumer because you're taking advantage of the manufacturing system. How do you, as a, as a multinational company that's shipping things everywhere around the world, how do those things return to you? That, that system seems... Uh, very, very difficult to sort of put in motion and obviously possibly uh, highly carbon intensive if, uh, you know, a carpet is made in Alabama and shipped to South America and and then has to be shipped back. Like, how does all of that uh, end up balancing out? I think a lot of that will have to do with coherent systems that are defined. You can't really create value unless you can concentrate something and then move it flow, concentration of flow, we call this. So you can see why oil is so valuable, because you can concentrate it, very high value, high energy value, all that, all things you can do with it, synthetic chemistries, you name it, usually versatile material. And, and then we can concentrate it and we can flow it, I can put it in a pipe, and then we can send it places. So amazingly valuable for feedstock. So I think what might start to happen on a global plastics strategy, for example, is that the polymers will be seen as perpetual assets. That's the first thing we have to put in our mind. Think of it as durable carbon, not as fugitive carbon, which would be atmospheric carbon that got there, like whoops, we lost it. Or if plastic bottles, in this analogy, get into the ocean, they've gone fugitive. So if we think about the ways of carbon and the way to think about carbon, Right now, everybody demonizes carbon. I mean, we're here at a climate conference where carbon is the enemy. That's ridiculous. Carbon is not the enemy. Yeah, pure molecule, it's, it's innocent. Yeah, it's how we behave with it. So if we throw it in the atmosphere and poison it, then it's on us, right? That's carbon negative behavior. Understanding the concept and there's wanting to buy into it and be a part of it as a as a customer How do we know when that's actually happening? Um, I'll give an example. So in the US a, a lot of people believe that uh, You know plastic recycling is happening on a large scale when 
I believe the vast majority of it is being incinerated as as uh, landfill. Land, landfilled yeah. and, and used in power plants. Uh, somewhat, yeah, um, in the States. Right, and, and so obviously that contributes to that fugitive carbon, yes. not that reused carbon. So yes. how do we follow the right companies as customers and things? How, how do we solve that problem? Well, you can get very specific and take, take advantage of people who want to be completely transparent with more localized systems, and we'll explain it to you in their business model. That's always helpful because you're close to it and you get information. But I think at a meta level for the planet, what we'll see is the chemical industries and the oil industries and, and the energy industries, but also the production, the consumer products companies. The idea is to take all of this polymer and think of it as an asset perpetually. So part of that will be chemical recycling, a big part of it in the future. So we'll, we'll just start taking this stuff back concentrating it and then putting it through pyrolysis or other forms of chemical recycling. Move it back to being oil again. So we return to oil, but we can also do an upcycling at that time. And upcycling for me is an increase in quality, not use, change of use. It's actually, we take out the sludges, the toxins, the metals, things that contaminate the polymers, and we just take them out and treat them as hazardous materials, but get the oil back and get the pure, pure polymers back into production and then redesign the auxiliaries, all the glues, the inks, the coatings, the adhesives, to be safe and healthy with the polymer. So we've upcycled our whole polymer system. And then we can start talking about plastics that have virtue across generations. And the companies that are helping us collect it, identify it, manage it, and so that's gonna become more and more sophisticated. So in your conception then, it's going to be products that are both biodegradable, so they can return to the soil, or they can be recycled, so that if you can't as a company determine that 100% of your products are going to come back as feedstock for the next round, they won't be damaging to the earth. Right. I see them going to be biological nutrient, Mm. is cycles, soil, typically, and then also... um, I see technical cycles, so mm. technical materials going back into the technosphere mm. with grace and dignity. Yeah. And we can do crossovers. There is a way to take uh, hydrocarbon-based polymers and actually break them down into carbohydrates right. and get them back to soil. That's pretty exciting territory. Right. But we, we're going to have to understand it as a system because right now if we take a biodegradable polymer, which we prefer to call compostable, meaning mm. it gets all the way. Mm. Then, then let's say compostable polymer, and you say I have a package of compostable, and you put it in a system of collection that includes the technical, then it contaminates the technical material because that's meant to be durable. Right. And it starts having a biodegradable element. And vice versa, if you res- try and get it so you can compost it, you've got technical material in it, you've contaminated the biological material. So we right. really do have to keep these two systems coherent and defined. So that we don't confuse them and make a big mess of the whole thing one more time. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. Muy buenas tardes. Eh, les damos la bienvenida en nombre de la Fundación BBVA. 
One brisk evening, away from the bustle of COP25, William McDonough and Professor Carlos Duarte came together at the BBVA Foundation in central Madrid for a discussion about the circular economy of carbon as a remedy for climate change. Here are but a few of the highlights of their talk. Well, we need to recognize that we thought we could dominate nature. We need to come back to think that we are at the service of nature. That's Carlos Duarte, professor of marine science at KAUST. And we have still much to learn from nature to solve our own pressing problems in the environment, not only in climate change, but all of the sustainability crisis can be addressed by being inspired by nature rather than trying to destroy it. We want 100% renewable energy. We want a cradle-to-cradle circular carbon economy. That's architect and author William McDonough. Carbon is the flux of the economy. We want an eco-civilization. Of course we do. And so do the Chinese. We share that. And we're all in it together. It will take forever. It will take us all. But that's the point. So really the problem <laughs> is that uh, when we uh, look at the conversations in the climate debate, we have the impression, or I have the impression that uh, maybe you share or you do not, that uh, everybody's trying to contribute to solve a problem and everybody's throwing solutions, but the solutions are being stacked just in a pile of solutions, but there is no plan as to how they should work together. So I think what is missing is a systemic way of how all of these elements that we can throw in to solve the problem, how they work together, how they work together, not just for privileged people that live in nations that have wealth and can, uh, can take the economic cost of transition to a new system, but how do they work together for, for a planet and work together for a planet that makes everybody living better and and achieves a more just and social justice. You have one of your principles on uh, cradle to cradle is uh, social uh, justice and equity. Right. So how do we put all that together in a way that works for everybody? And that needs a plan, that needs design. It's not just by throwing more solutions and piling them up that we're going to solve the problem. We need to offer a system where these solutions can work together and they can work together for everybody, not just for the wealthy. I think the other thing is that the reason we all have to work together so quickly, when John Kennedy said, we'll go to the moon, you have to remember that when they landed on the moon, do you know what the average age of the engineering team that put Neil Armstrong on the moon? It's 28. That means that those engineers were 18 years old when Kennedy said we're going to the moon. So you see Greta here, she's 16, right? Think about this. If we say in 10 years we're gonna do an earth shot, what's this moon shot business? Moon's fine, earth needs us. Let's do an earth shot. We have 10 years, that's it. If we can go to the moon in 10 years, it's the 28 year olds that took us there. It's Greta and her ilk that will give us an earth shot. Let's go give them a nurse shot. So I think with this, we're going to uh, thank you all for coming and remind, remind you that we are not uh, going to design a new house. 
we're going to design a better planet. Yeah. We're going to do that together. So let's design a better planet. And I'd like to thank the Fundación BBVA for hosting us again, and the director, Rafael Pardo, for uh, having us in, a, in this beautiful house again. And thank you all for taking time away from a weekend and a holiday to uh, join us for a few hours. Thank you very much. You're listening to Science Town. We should realize that in the order of 45% of the total carbon dioxide emissions are related to the non-energy sector. That's the energy that we use to make products. That's Professor Jorge Gascon, director of the Kaust Catalysis Center. Many of those products are made through catalytic processes, and by making more efficient catalytic processes, we can cut quite a lot on the amount of CO2 that we emit. What, what kinds of products are those, uh, for example? Everything. So some of the most uh, emitting uh, products are uh, cement, aluminum, steel manufacture, ammonia synthesis, uh, production of polymers, almost every single product that you can think of. And polymers is plastics, essentially, Pol right? Polymers right. is plastics, yeah. yes. yes. Uh, then by making processes more efficient, making less weights that needs to be separated after the process and so on, we can save a lot of on energy and therefore emit less carbon dioxide. So that will be one part of our work. The other part of our work focuses on developing processes in which we can recycle carbon dioxide. Then uh, I think a very nice example will be we have sectors that are extremely difficult to decarbonize. One of them is aviation, for instance. I don't see planes uh, flying on batteries in the next 200 years, but I see planes still flying for the next 200 years. And we need to create uh, fuels for these uh, planes. We need to create fuels for long-range transportation, like for instance, marine. We need to create fuels for trunk transportation, huge trunks that are CO2 neutral, right? Then the ideas in which we are working in that direction will be to combine capture of carbon dioxide either from energy uh, generating plants or even from the atmosphere and recycle that CO2 into a, the form of a fuel that can be fed back into our planes, into our boats, so that at the end when you consider the whole cycle, these transports are completely CO2 neutral. Mm. How, how does that work? So do you grab the carbon before you make the fuel or do you try to catch it as it comes out as a gas or how does that work? So you catch it as it comes out as a gas or even from the atmosphere and then you process it making use of renewable energy and transform it back into a fuel. So that with an input of renewable energy we can close the cycle into a CO2 neutral cycle. Wow. 
Does that end up using the same infrastructure? So is it a, is it a liquid fuel that you absolutely, ship? Absolutely, that's the beauty of the whole thing, that it is 100% compatible with the current infrastructure and that only requires input from renewable energy. So um, this would essentially be like a petrol, but a petrol that's... Synthetic uh, petrol, yes, absolutely. Reclaimed carbon. Absolutely. Wow, that's exciting. Um, so how does that then get from the lab uh, into, uh, you know, testing sites and, and then down into actually the greater economy, sorry? Okay, so when it comes to CO2 utilization, I think that we have to get a little bit out from the economically viable or economically unviable. And we have to face that these fuels are going to be more expensive than if we made them from oil. I mean, that's completely out of the question. Our work is to make them as cheap as possible, but we know that we will not get to the point in which we are able to make synthetic fuels through all these steps cheaper than those that come from, from oil. This is where policy gets into the whole game. Right? So we know that uh, every time we fill our tank, our car tank, most of what we pay are taxes. So my question is, are governments ready to renounce to those taxes to have really clean fuels running around? If that's the case, then we can make something that is actually very profitable. Right? How does it get from the lab to the next levels? We need to demonstrate the technology at relatively large scales, and that's something that up to the bench scale we can do at cost. And from that point on, together with our partners, we have to further develop that. If you consider only transportation and long-range transportation, let's call it that way, we will be talking in the order of close to 10 gigatons of CO2 per year, which is it's a, it's, it's a nice part of the, of the picture. So then a proposed vehicle, whether it be a plane, whether it be a car, would capture carbon and store it in a tank that you would then sort of return when you go to the pump kind of thing? I don't think that that will be possible in the small car, right? So for, for the small cars, I think that the real way to go is hybrid, so that for when you get into a city, you just run on your electric motor, and only when you want to do a longer range distance, you will tap into your, into your deposit. With aviation, direct capture on the plane, that's not going to be possible. There, if we really want to make it uh, CO2 neutral, we should capture the CO2 that is emitted directly from the air and reprocess it. When you think of big boats for transport, there we may have the possibility of actually capturing the CO2 right after it is emitted, store it in the, in the vessel, and then bring it back and reprocess it to the fuel. But, I mean, this is, this is an extremely complicated problem, and what we need to find specific solutions for all the parts that make the whole problem, right? I mean, there's going to be a huge bill to pay here, probably, and it should be split in the most fair way possible, right? This is where I think uh, people from other disciplines, from humanities, really need to get into the picture. I mean, I think that we are in this specific issue much more advanced in the technology, from the technology point of view, than from the policy point of view. And until both things don't come together, there's not going to be a solution. 
Um, so you're here at COP25 uh, and you're giving a talk. What's your talk going to be about? So my talk is going to be about the different opportunities that we have to recycle uh, carbon dioxide. So ways in which we can make out of carbon dioxide back plastics, ways in which out of carbon dioxide we can make fuels, ways in which we can make materials in general out of carbon dioxide. How, how long do you think before consumers will be engaging with these types of systems? Well, I think that the momentum is building quite fast over the last couple of years. Let's hope that it continues that way. Probably we will see these concepts first apply in Europe. And I hope that with that driving force coming from Europe and from other countries, the rest of the world is going to adopt them. Because if only Europe manages to get there, in the global picture, that's not going to play any role. Of course. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us and uh, best of luck with your talk today. Thank you very much. Cheers. Tech, science, and startup culture. Science Town. The oceans, I mean, they, they are very large, no? They are the 70% of the Earth's surface, and they are in direct contact with the atmosphere, so the oceans are considered to be the major CO2 sink. That's Susanna Augusti, professor of marine science at KAUST and this is they are removing CO2 from the atmosphere and they are doing by two mechanisms. One of those mechanisms is made by biology no? and we call this the biological carbon pump. Okay? So this biological carbon pump is drive by the photosynthetic microorganisms that grow in the surface and by doing photosynthesis, they are removing the CO2, and then it's transforming to sugars and other products, and then passed through the food web. You know? So if we place the Red Sea in this context, okay, the Red Sea is one of the uh, warm seas, you know? so temperature is high, and usually in this situation, the ocean surface is low productive. Okay, so photosynthesis is low, and the biomass of the photosynthetic plankton is small. Has anyone looked into blooms of uh, uh, plankton as a as a way to fix carbon? Uh, yes, well, it, this has been talked for a long time, no, as an initiative to try to enhance <laughs> this biological pump, no. And unfortunately, the initiatives were not successful. So they are always implying increase the fertilization of the water because I say most of the ocean is also low productive. So the idea is that by adding iron or other nutrients, we will increase the production, we will increase photosynthesis and we will increase the removal. But there's, this initiative has been not really viable because also they have high risk, okay? Mm, increase the production. Nobody really knows mm, what we will have after, no? And in some areas it could be even worse 
because then they will maybe result in an eutrophication of the water and then this will result in a re reduction of the oxygen below and also it's very hard to do this in the open ocean so this initiative has been not successful so we cannot look at this for the moment as an alternative to help the biological pump of the oceans to remove CO2. So, so Carlos, the um, obviously mangroves can be scaled up quite easily, seemingly. Uh, you had also talked about um, seagrasses and seaweed as a really great uh, ways to fix carbon. So yeah. what, what things could be done in that regard? So unlike uh, plankton that Susanna was referring that in much of the ocean uh, the productivity is very low due to a limitation of nutrients. That's Carlos Duarte, professor of marine science at KAUST. These uh, coastal habitats like mangroves, seagrass, salt marshes and also algal forests, they are hugely productive regardless of the environment. They're very, very productive intrinsically and even in the harshest conditions like we may have in the Red Sea, they continue to be highly productive and they are the most intense carbon sinks in the biosphere. And we have lost half of their surface, so that provides an opportunity to first conserve what is left so we do not continue to lose and that losses contribute to a greenhouse gas emission. So it just by uh, preventing further losses, we're already mitigating climate change. But then we can rebuild much of what we lost. And uh, for mangroves, we have already had some experiences, for instance, in Vietnam, where uh, more than 2,000 square kilometers of mangroves were planted successfully in a few years with very little uh, resources. So this is, this is scalable, but that scalability is also limited. So our assessment is that a blue carbon strategies, which is around, uh, revolve around restoring these habitats, may be able to contribute 6% of the added uh, CO2 mitigation required to meet the Paris Agreement. But uh, seaweed is something else because uh, seaweed, the habitats, the wild seaweed are also limited. But through seaweed aquaculture, that is indeed scalable. So seaweed aquaculture is growing uh, globally at about 8% uh, per year. And Susanna and I have been working in China, which contributes half of the global production of seaweed aquaculture to look at what the bottlenecks might be for further expansion and what the benefits for the environment are, both in terms of carbon, but also removal of excess nutrients that cause problems in the coast of China. And this 8% is perfectly scalable for a long term, so that by 2050, we could reach about 50,000 square kilometers from a current estimate of 6,000 square kilometers of seaweed aquaculture. And those 50,000 square kilometers could deliver something in the order of 20 to 40 teragrams of uh, carbon uh, removed from the atmosphere every year. So there is one new solution that is scalable and can be deployed with very little cost and also generates income that is broadening the portfolio of blue carbon strategies, uh, which are uh, ocean-based contributions to solving uh, climate change. I, I lived in East Africa, um, and in Tanzania in particular, um, just like on the Red Sea, mm. there'll be a kilometer of sort of low reef, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, women's groups actually will just string a line between two sticks in the sand and yeah. grow uh, seaweed, yeah. bale it, and then sell it. No, I and mean, in Tanzania it's very well known that it's, uh, 
yeah, that is uh, involving women in particular, and they then contribute to uh, increasing the income of the household. But then uh, the seaweed production itself has a potential to uh, uh, contribute to climate change mitigation, but that potential is realized or not, depending on how the crop is managed. So what we need to do is in uh, areas like Tanzania, Indonesia, where they do massive amounts of uh, seaweed aquaculture, but the technology to convert that seaweed into valuable products is not there, then we need to help them to establish uh, uh, biorefineries where the full array of products that can be extracted from seaweed and eventually contribute to climate change mitigation can be delivered. So that uh, now, right now there is a, an uncoupling between where the production happens, which is in Asia, and uh, as you say, Eastern Africa, and where the technology is being developed, which is in the Western world, and also at cause we are contributing to that development. But we need to match those two and bring those two together. As biologists, is it problematic, perhaps, to see ecosystems as a, a circular resource? It, it feels, perhaps, that that could go awry. I just wondered what you both thought about that. Uh, no, I think an ecosystem is uh, it's always working in cycles. You know? Everything is cycled and recycled. Um, no, I think it will be a very good model. The circular economy mm, is more based in, in how an ecosystem is working, no, no, so not the opposite. So, so as biologists, yes, we, we believe is they are really in the sense to be in well coordinated with nature and, or with earth use. Okay, so, in fact, it's not only for uh, at the level of the one ecosystem, but it's at the global level, the global carbon cycle is a closely tuned uh, machine of a circular carbon economy. So we're actually not inventing anything, we're just drawing from nature. And in drawing from nature, we need to understand also how nature does it. Not only that it does it, but how it does it. Because in understanding how it does it, we can derive a lot of uh, valuable insights and technology to be able to do that ourselves. Um, so then how does this get scaled up from here? How um, can consumers make sure that they're consuming goods that are um, more eco-friendly and contributing to these carbon, these circular carbon economic cycles? Well, consumers need to be more selective first, no? And um, be interested in know what is the product and what is the origin of the product and how the product has been elaborated. I think consumers have an important role and I think now it is moving to a great uh, participation of personal individuals in this uh, uh, concern about climate change and people is getting much, much more uh, compromised at the level that they can 
do, and I think individuals can do uh, a lot in these in these aspects. Yeah, in fact, certification systems can help do that, but right now there is no certification system for a circular carbon economy. But there is a precedent, which is the cradle to cradle certification system that Bill McDonough established, and Bill McDonough is an American architect that is going to is joining us here in COP25 in the event that the Cows and the Ministry of Energy are organizing in a, on the circular carbon economy because he's credited with being the father of the concept. And he published a book, a highly influential book on 2002 called Cradle to Cradle, that is actually a circular economy. It's the inspiration for the circular economy concept and also the circular carbon economy. And from the concepts in the book, they have developed an accreditation system which will be the only existing accreditation system for a circular carbon economy. So if the products are accredited through cradle to cradle, then consumers would have uh, confidence that though what they're consuming is already been designed to be recycled and not generate waste and not generate uh, emissions to the atmosphere. You're, you're both speaking alongside Bill um, today uh, as part of the conference. What are each of you going to be talking about? So, well, I will be talking about uh, how nature does it, precisely what we were discussing earlier. So I, was, uh, I, w I will explain that the global carbon cycle is actually a circular carbon economy that works perfectly balanced and has a good track record because he has kept the climate system stable for a million years. So I don't think that any of us can have a track record on technology better than that, right? So, and I will then go into some details of how we have perturbed that carbon cycle and therefore what are the obvious uh, strategies to rebalance our, uh, our role and then be able to fit our contribution to a global carbon cycle that is balanced. And I will, uh, in doing so, I will point to the need to uh, derive additional inspiration from nature, from the largest organisms that are whales, but also to the smallest and, and more humble, like oysters. So we can learn a lot from biology, how biology does it. And that is the foundation of the circular carbon economy. And also that's the reason why it makes sense, because that's how, bio, that's how the biosphere works. Yeah, and I would talk about the role of the oceans in the carbon cycle and especially on the role of the biological component as a sink for the CO2. Uh, also, I will expose that because of the warming problem, we are decreasing the capacity, the natural capacity of the oceans to remove CO2. And we did in the oceans because of warming, and this is resulting in an increase of the more poor areas that are in expansion. And also in the coastal, we have uh, destroyed about 50% of the vegetation, their water and the mangroves and everything. So in the oceans we cannot do nothing it's a loss <laughs> but in the coastal areas we can do a lot and we rebuild this vegetation and this blue forest that this is now uh, known then we can help nature to remove uh, efficiently and restore the role of the coastal areas in removing co2 thank you both for joining us Thank you, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you to everyone who took time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes and Alex Arias. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.